0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome to this Monday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us as always. Follow at danproftshow.com where you get the podcast of the program. And soon we're going to be updating the website so you get a lot more enriched content, value-added content, in addition to what you get from the program itself, Uh, and then on social media, at Dan Prof Show, Uh, I want to begin tonight uh, with uh, a choice that we have to make as Americans, Uh, nicely framed by a Memphis State representative on the one hand, Representative John DeBerry Jr., and uh, a uh, left-wing writer named Vicki Osterweil, who is the author of the new book, In Defense of Looting. On the other hand, you've probably by the time of my show, you've heard a lot about the details of what happened over the weekend with the murder of a Trump supporter in Portland, with the shooting of police officers in St. Louis, including a murder of one police officer in St. Louis, as well as Chicago, two in each city. Um, And uh, some of the incendiary rhetoric on the streets of Washington, D.C., as well as Portland from Black Lives Matter and Antifa types. So we'll we'll get to that a little bit later for a refresher. But I think this is a better frame for uh, wider discussion and uh, deeper thinking on the issue. Start with um, Representative John DeBerry. Uh, He is a, a black gentleman from Memphis. Interestingly, he's a black gentleman who was kicked out of the Democrat Party earlier this spring before the remarks you're about to hear. Because he dared to disagree with the cultural Marxists, even in Tennessee, even in Tennessee. So you think that, again, the cultural Marxists aren't the dominant force in the Democrat Socialist Party in 2020 America. Uh, A African-American state representative from Memphis whose lineage goes back to the civil rights era there, as he talked about his him attending civil rights uh, marches, peaceful protests with his father in the 60s thrown out of the Democrat Party. Because he dared to disagree on issues like school choice and life with the cultural Marxist orthodoxy it's just an interesting backdrop to what you're about to hear as he discusses what I just referenced his uh, time with his father the understanding he developed by watching his father participate in the civil rights movement in the 60s
4: I went with my father When he and our neighbor got one of those I am a man signs and went downtown Memphis and watched him stand there proudly with Dr. King and other men and women, black and white, who had enough courage to stand up against what was wrong. And the way they did it, they had on their suits, their shirts, their ties. And if it was cold, they overcoats, they locked arms, and they marched peacefully. And Dr. King stood for that which was peaceful. Because the world took a look at what was happening in Memphis, in Chicago, in Detroit, in Washington, D.C., and all over this country, we changed the entire world. And we changed it because those men and women had enough guts, integrity, Enough citizenship and love of country because my father was a Korean War era soldier, as many of those other men and women were. They didn't beg for anything.
3: Doing it from a basis of integrity, love for country. That, along with the nonviolent approach, distinguishes what happened in the 1960s with the civil rights movement to address an injustice in this country with what's happening on the streets of America today.
4: They did it by standing like men and women of integrity and class and common sense and values. When the riots started and folks started burning stuff down, that's when my father took my arm and we left. We left because that was not what we were there for. That was not what Dr. King was there for. That was not what others who are famous in the civil rights days were there for. This was not peaceful. It was not part of our movement, and it only hurt everything.
3: And uh, he goes on from there to uh, sort of uh, take a line that um, I'm wanted to offer, which is this whole uh, response to this idea We finally have to have a conversation about race in America when in point of fact, all we do is talk about race in America, but we talk about it in the wrong way. We talk about it through the prism of identity, uh, identity politics
4: and all we do in America right now is talk about color. Every issue, every issue is about race It's about color instead of us sitting down at the table like men and women of common sense and common justice and understanding that our enemies are looking with a greedy vigilance upon us as we tear ourselves apart eternally. They have been watching us for 50 years, preparing step by step by step by step for us to kill ourselves. And I may not be back here next year, and I'm sure everything I say say is going to be misconstrued and misquoted and used against me in November. Fine, fine, because I stand for my father's legacy. I stand for the men and women who acted like they had some sense and some courage and changed
3: this country. Sometimes, uh, sometimes there are more important things than being reelected. By contrast, Vicki Osterweil, it's the other way we can go. This is sure to be a number one bestseller and in your kids' classrooms in short order. Vicki Osterweil's book, In Defense of Looting, which came out last week. In Defense of Looting. She's a writer for, uh, among other left-wing outlets, The Nation. How do you define looting, she's asked in this interview she did with NPR. When I use the word looting, she responded, I mean the mass expropriation of property, mass shoplifting during a moment of upheaval or riot. That's the thing I'm defending. I'm not defending any situation in which property is stolen by force, It's not a home invasion either. It's about a certain kind of action that's taken during protests and riots. So you see, all you have to do is uh, identify a cause you believe to be righteous. Get your friends together. Go to the downtown business district and lay waste to it. And if you're doing it as a group under the rubric of of upheaval or riot, then it's defensible because that's just the max expropriation of property, not a one-off burglary. She um, goes on to say, can you... Uh, in response to the, can, whether or not she can offer a distinction about the rioting and looting that have gone hand in hand. She said, writing generally refers to any moment of mass up unrest or upheaval. Riots are a space in which a mass of people has produced a situation in which the general laws that govern society no longer function. And then people can act in a different way in the street and in public. I'd say writing is a broader category in which looting appears to be a tactic. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what about um, looting? And rioting, which seem to be used interchangeably, even by her, as a tactic. It does a number of important things. Gets people what they need for free immediately, which means they're capable of living and reproducing their lives without having to rely on jobs or a wage. Sure. What they need immediately, you know, a Louis Vuitton purse, Ferragamo shoes, a watch. They need immediately. Mm -hmm. It also attacks the very way in which food and things are distributed. It attacks the idea of property It attacks the idea that in order for someone to have a roof over their head or have a meal ticket, they have to work for a boss in order to buy things that people uh, just like them somewhere else in the world had to make under the same conditions. You know, having a boss points to the way in which that's unjust. And the reason the world is organized that way is for the profit of people who own the stores and the factories. So you get to the heart of the property relation that and demonstrate that without police and without state oppression, we can have things for free. It's just that simple. If only we could dispense with the police. If only we could get out from underneath the oppression of the state as exemplified by the police. We could have things for free, and live in harmony. This is one of the manuals that falls right in line with white fragility. It falls right in line with New York Times podcast that suggests that the problem in New York City public schools, which you have to be on the lookout For is white parents exerting too much power. This is all of the same kind. And I'll give the, the closing comment to State Representative John DeBerry from Memphis, a question we should all be contemplating.
4: Don't you know that the people who are looking at what's happening in Washington, in Detroit, in Portland, in Seattle, they're getting emboldened because we act like a bunch of punks, too frightened to stand up and protect our own stuff. You tell me that somebody got the right to tear down property that Tennessee taxpayers paid for, that American taxpayers paid for, and somebody has the right to destroy it, deface it, and tear it down? What kind of people have we become?
3: What kind of people have we become, at least in certain quarters? That's an operative question going into the full-fledged election season, isn't it? Coming up, uh, we're going to talk to former New York Times reporter Alex Berenson about uh, some uh, momentous uh, declarations and uh, data from the CDC. Get some context so that you have a better understanding of it when you have conversations about things like lockdown policies, which, oh, by the way, are being questioned even across the pond by BBC's medical editor. Welcome to the party. More, including with Alex Berenson right after
0: political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Yeah, I know we've talked uh, quite a bit about how uh, the uh, D.C. press corps has covered violence on America's streets, You know, fiery but peaceful protests with correspondents standing in front of burning buildings, I should say. Uh, Well, they uh, also apply their trade when it comes to protests against lockdown policies. For example, CNN reporting thousands of covid deniers protest in Berlin and London. There were huge protests against lockdown policies, particularly in Berlin and London. But um, they're covid deniers. If you protest any of the government's diktats when it comes to covid, no matter how ascientific they are. Uh, no matter how counterfactual they are, then you're a COVID denier. There's nobody who actually holds a position. Yes, it's a serious virus that has killed a lot of people, taken a lot of lives, and we need to be thoughtful about it. But we also need to be restrained and work on an incremental basis on what we know to be true rather than what we wish was true. Now that nobody could hold that position. And I, I, I remark on this in addition to CNN's coverage, juxtapose that since it some of the protesting was in London with uh, this op-ed from the BBC, from the BBC's medical editor, Fergus Walsh. Coronavirus is it time to move on and get back to normal life. Oh, my, That's heretical, isn't it? The number of patients in hospital who have a confirmed COVID-19 diagnosis has been falling for months. At the peak in the UK, there are around 20,000 hospitalized. Now it's fewer than 800. Are the government and media overdoing coronavirus? Yes. Is it time to move on and get back to normal life? These are big questions. And given the perilous state of the economy, they deserve some attention. Welcome to the party, Fergus. And of course, the big news um, out this weekend was this report about uh, CDC updating their COVID numbers to quote-unquote admit that only 6% of the 153,000 confirmed deaths the CDC has confirmed. I know some of the tickers have a higher number. We're talking about CDC confirmed deaths, their statistics. 6% of the 153,000 deaths recorded actually died from COVID-19. The other 94% had two to three other serious illnesses. The overwhelming majority were also a very advanced age. And for more on this, we're pleased to be joined uh, again by somebody who has been following this meticulously and offering a lot of good commentary as well as data digging. He is Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, author of Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness and Violence. Uh, Alex, you may want to hurry off to Congress as the House is debating (laughs) marijuana legalization uh, legislation, of course. But let's start with COVID and that CDC report. You had a a Twitter thread on the topic that aimed to provide a little bit of context to that number, suggesting it's only 6% that died of COVID.
5: You know, it's funny, I always get accused of being a COVID denier and I do whatever I can to play things down. I've pushed back against the people who are saying it's only 6%. That, I mean, that number doesn't appear right to me because when you look at the other 94%, they include things like acute respiratory distress syndrome or pneumonia. So those are things that you would expect COVID to cause, even if somebody didn't have a pre-existing condition. So saying that 94% of those COVID deaths are not caused by COVID is clearly wrong. What I said was, if you look at certain comorbidities, cancer, sepsis, unintentional poisonings, A motor look at motorcycle
3: co- accidents, <laughs> motorcycle
5: accidents. <laughs> if you look at certain comorbidities that clearly are not related to COVID, and forgetting diabetes and obesity and these things, and, wh- and we're talking about obesity. Let's be clear: this is usually morbid obesity. These are people who are you know extremely overweight and not in very good physical condition. But put those aside and just talk about dementia, Alzheimer's, strokes, and these unintentional poisonings, you've got about 50,000 deaths right there. So those deaths, I think, until somebody actually looks at all the death certificates and all the cases, it's going to be hard to know. But you can assume that a lot of those deaths, especially things like the poisonings and Alzheimer's, are, those are people who died with covid and not from covid.
3: And you you make the point too. It, it would be nice if the CDC offered more specific information about 77,000 deaths that had other that's, that's unspecified right. conditions.
5: That's right cuz what were those? Do those ha- you know were those lung conditions or were those you know totally random car accidents? Right? I mean some of those are going to uh, literally be car accidents. So here's the here's the thing, okay? And to me actually that was only the third most important CDC news of the last week. Something is happening inside the CDC, that, and, I, and I would love to know where it's coming from and who's driving it. Is it being driven by some scientists who just had enough? Is it being driven by the Trump administration saying, we need you you know, to be more honest here and not foment panic as much? I don't know. I don't know where it's coming from. But the CDC has put out two big things in the last few days. First of all, they said you don't have to quarantine for 14 days. Uh, if you come from a different state or, or country. And second of all, you know, they said, they said that not everybody needs to get tested if they don't have symptoms. And that is on the heels, and maybe that's what's driving this, of this incredible story in the New York Times, one of the, one of the few really good stories the Times has done since this started, showing that up to 90% of positive PCR tests, the tests that show you have an infection, may be wrong. That because here's what, here's what they do. They, they essentially look for tiny bits of the virus, And then they run a cycle, which you know, which they're getting off this nasal swab, and then they try to amplify it, meaning they try to make it essentially grow in the lab until there's enough of it that they either get a positive or a negative, or or that they can find some. And if after a certain number of amplification cycles they can't find any, they say, okay, there is none. First of all, the more cycles you do, the more risk of contamination just inside the lab there is. And second of all, there's going to be people who have tiny, tiny fragments of virus, maybe from you know, an infection that's months old that's gone, or maybe because they had a very, very low-level infection to begin with. And if you run enough of this cycle, if you cycle this enough times, you're going to come out with a positive result. So the difference between 30 cycles and 40 cycles apparently is a tenfold increase in the number of positive tests you find. And what would be normal for most viruses would be to do this 25 to 30 cycles. And these states are doing this 35 to 40 cycles. Now, that may sound like sort of a minor technical difference, but the upshot is it's led to a massive Overstatement in the number of people who have a positive test. And let me throw one more thing at you and come back to deaths, which is something I also tweeted about this weekend. Many of the deaths that states report do not come from a coroner or a doctor saying this person died of COVID 19. They come from comparing a registry of positive tests, which the states have, to a registry of deaths. And if your name is on both, you come out as a COVID death, no matter what, okay? Because you had COVID at some point, according to the test, and you died. And the states have disclosed this. The Illinois, I think it was the, the Cook County medical examiner discloses. Maricopa County in Arizona discloses. So, 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 if you have a situation where you're getting lots of positive tests that you really shouldn't, and you're then using those results to determine who died of COVID, there's going to be some overstatement of COVID deaths. So. So, uh, so uh, you know, uh, and 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 basically, it's very very interesting now that the CDC, they didn't publicly say that, okay, but they did publicly say don't go get tested if you're asymptomatic. It's really amazing that they said that.
3: Part part of it may be because in Chicago, New York, all of the travelers uh, are taking one way tickets out of town. <laughs> that 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 may have something to do with it.
5: But we're we're really at a very strange point in our in our you know political, medical, legal world right now where, where where there's a lot that's happening that's not grounded in science, and yet the people who are pointing this out get accused, constantly being accused of, by CNN and the New York Times of being hoaxers and deniers. None of, the, none of that is true. I'm not a denier. You guys are not deniers. We're not denying COVID is real. We're denying that maybe we should blow up our world.
3: When we come back with Alex Berenson, uh, I want to get his take on what he thinks public opinion would be, how it would change if people had a better handle on the scale and nature of COVID-19 related deaths, as well as the uh, impact of lockdown policies, both impact in terms of extent as well as duration. More with Alex Berenson right after this.
0: TheHoffShow.com
3: We're back with Alex Berenson. We're discussing the decision-making and data from CDC over the last week. And with respect to the death count, you know, it's one of those things it would be interesting to survey people and understand, you know, if you knew that the number of COVID deaths actual COVID being the proximate cause of the death was 50 or 60,000 rather than 150 or 170,000. Would that change your mind about policies? I don't know what the answer is. Uh, It also would be interesting to survey people and say... If you knew that two weeks to flatten the curve, six months later, was projecting out to be the way that we're going to live for no, and the way that your children are not going to be educated, for example, for the next year or two years, would that change your attitude about lockdown policies? I think particularly the latter question, you'd see some real movement in people's opinions about this.
5: Well, what have you said to people if you knew that, you know, 100,000 people have died of COVID and, in a, you know, in a bad flu season, 60 or 80,000 people die and We believe that the lockdowns have killed 58,000 people or whatever the number may be. Mm -hmm. Okay, because there's a real number. Here's the problem. So we've been looking we've been looking at excess deaths. Okay, and there's been and there are there have been some excess deaths this year. And there is a notion that, you know, COVID is causing all the excess deaths. The problem is if the COVID counts are overstated, the excess death counts have to be coming from somewhere else. And so, so are they coming from you know a middle-aged people committing suicide? Are they coming from older people who have a heart attack and don't go to the office? You know, don't go to the hospital because they're sick? Are they coming? You know, where are they coming from, these excess deaths? And we have no idea. You know why? Because there's only one thing that we count obsessively on a minute-by-minute basis, COVID deaths. Right. We don't count suicides. We don't count overdoses. We don't count heart attacks. But God forbid, if you have a COVID-positive test and you die, you're going to like, it's like they're ringing a bell on CNN every time
3: it happens. People don't even don't even seem to care about deaths or hospitalizations anymore other than with respect to a quick glance at the ticker every now and then on CNN or right. MSNBC. Because, for example, the outbreak at the University of Alabama last week, a thousand cases, there is no conversation, a thousand cases, okay, were those, um, what are the number of hospitalizations, number of of deaths, the number of people that are asymptomatic, the number of people have a mild case. And this is not just um, hacks manning a desk at CNN. This is also Scott Gottlieb, uh, President Trump's former FDA director, Dr. Scott Gottlieb at the American Enterprise Institute now. He op-ed over the weekend in the journal, Sweden shouldn't be America's pandemic model. And he does sort of the same thing here. He writes, COVID spreads too easily to think it can be confined to the young. The summer epidemics in Sunbelt States initially affected mainly a younger cohort, then seeped into an older population. A wedding in Maine caused an outbreak that spread to a rehab center and a jail. It is neither possible nor desirable to lock away the elderly and people with underlying health conditions. So he argues that those promoting the Swedish, quote unquote, let it rip policy are uh, misunderstanding how far we are away from anything resembling herd immunity and that we need to be still in this uh, mode of uh, particularly substantial lockdown policies.
5: People have sent me this op-ed and I've not read it yet. So I'm going off your uh, description of it. But let's look at a couple of things. First of all, it's not possible or desirable to lock away elderly people and people with health conditions. What would a general lockdown do? It would lock away everybody, including the elderly and people with health conditions. So so what's he talking about? The herd immunity question is very, very much open to debate right now. Right now, there are people in the scientific community, smart people, who think that Sweden and possibly the Sunbelt states and other places like, like, like New York Brazil, like New York have reached herd immunity. But but forget New York, because New York had a pretty high, has pretty high antibody counts in some parts of New York. Like New York is very dense and the, and the epidemic did spread quickly there in March and April. And, and you can find places, boroughs like the Bronx counties that have 30 or 40 plus percent antibodies. Okay, I'm talking about Sweden because Sweden doesn't have 30 or 40 percent antibodies. It has 15 percent, maybe 20 percent antibodies. And, and, And just so listeners understand, that means you do have a test to see if somebody has survived and recovered from the epidemic from COVID and they have antibodies, which are the immune response you get. Why is it that with no lockdown, no masks, no real restrictions, Sweden has no cases practically no hospitalizations practically, and no deaths actually. What has happened in Sweden to make the epidemic go away if they're not doing all these things that Scott Gottlieb says we have to do? And the answer may be herd immunity. Okay. In Brazil, there are cities that had terrible epidemics in May and June that are gone. The field hospitals are are, are deconstructed. There are no more people practically dying of COVID in these places. and And this is Brazil. There's been You know, people are not complying with the mask restrictions. They're not really doing much to stop the epidemic. And yet the epidemic has stopped on its own. So here's the thing. Scott Gottlieb may be right that we need to get to 60 or 70 percent for herd immunity. But there's increasing real world evidence that he's wrong.
3: He is Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, author of Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness and Violence. Alex, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks so much.
6: a good time i'm having a ball don't stop me now if you want to have a good time just give me a call don't stop don't me, call me now a good time the
0: more you listen the more you'll know this is this, this, this is the dan Proft show
3: Welcome back to the show and um, the ethnic studies bill known as AB 331 passed uh, California's assembly last year. It was uh, deferred in terms of any action by Governor Newsom during the protests and riots and COVID lockdowns. So it's pending his signature. It will require all school districts in California to offer a semester long ethnic studies class starting in 2025. The model curriculum on the uh, state's uh, education department website, suggests the course should, quote, build new possibilities for post-imperial life that promotes collective narratives of transformative resistance. That's a, uh, a sentence chock full of uh, Marxist dog whistles, isn't it? Examples of systems of power, which can include economic systems like capitalism and social systems like patriarchy. Among the approved topics, racism, LGBT, LGBTQ rights, immigration rights, access to quality health care, income equality, and so forth. This is K-12 through curriculum. You think uh, I was joking around when uh, at the top of the hour I talked about Vicki Osterweil's new book, In Defensive Looting, as part of curriculum in K-12 through school systems across the country in the near term. California may be the first to adopt it. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Charles Steele, Associate Professor at Hillsdale College, where he holds the Herman and Susan Detweiler Chair in Economics. He's also the author of of the uh, new book himself called "The Great Reset," Charles uh, Professor Steele, Charles Steele, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
7: Great, thank you. Uh, happy to be here. Let's, uh, I, I should. I'm put sorry. A correction. It isn't. That, I don't actually have a book on this yet.
3: Oh, I, a piece. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Peace, I, I'm. Yeah. So, I'm too uh, focused on Vicky uh, Osterweil's <laughs> book. I'm still <laughs> yeah, a, I'm still reeling from it. it. Yes. Um, right. So, uh, as opposed to uh, I, per your piece, "The Great Reset," posing the great danger. Let's start with education. Um, And, and, you know, this question that keeps coming back as more and more parents are learning more about more about what their schools have been teaching their kids. Should parents be trying to break their kids back into K through 12, the K through 12 systems they've been in in so many places or, frankly, uh, find a new place for them to matriculate?
7: I think it's extremely important that parents start paying very close attention to what's going on in the schools and begin either uh, correcting that or getting out. Um, I know that a number of our, my former students who graduated have gone into education We're working in classic schools and in, uh, in uh, charter schools and things. But we definitely need alternatives because much of the education system has been hijacked by the left.
3: Yeah, and, uh, and we see this playing out, the legislation that's pending Governor Newsom's signature in California as well as just sort of the union domination of so many of these school districts. You can have 80, 90 percent of parents say we want in-class learning at least for a portion of the week. And uh, guess what? Your uh, local teachers union has veto power.
7: Right. You know, I, I, uh, we, here, here at Hillsdale College, where I am, we, uh, of course, are, are having in-person classes. But I don't think you can really have a, have a do what a, what a school is really supposed to do without being around people. You can't do it remotely. If you can do it remotely, there's no point in having the schools. Those uh, places that can be done entirely remotely, we should just go to online uh, for the for the types of lessons they're delivering.
3: When you're, when you're talking about the Great Reset in general terms, I mean, what is it that you see coming? And I, I suppose part of that is uh, flying off of who you see accruing more power during this time.
7: Right. Well, let me say what the Great Reset is. The, the World Economic Forum, this is the organization that hosts the uh, – the, the annual Davos conference where all sorts of uh, 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 very influential heavy hitters uh, from around the globe, in finance, business, government, academia, gather and have a uh, conference to discuss the world uh, world economy and world situation. Well, they're proposing a set of initiatives that they call the Great Reset. and they look at it this way. They believe that the world is facing multiple crises, uh, uh, concerning uh, the environment, concerning health care systems, social justice, and, and finance. And they believe that this is a golden opportunity, that the COVID shutdown, the, the Corona Chinese coronavirus shutdown, has given an opportunity to restructure economic, political, and social systems. And they call that the Great Reset. And so they are proposing initiatives to, uh, Uh, to do this. And much of it looks very top down and not uh, it's not the sort of thing that I think most people would be willing to accept if they understood what was going on.
3: Well, and this, um, yeah, and this this comes as no surprise. And we're seeing that translated into uh, domestic policy gambits as well by uh, political parties at the uh, at the, at the national level in the West, including, of course, the Democrat Socialists here in America. And it speaks to this larger shibboleth that's out there. That I wonder if you would comment on uh, as soon as uh, November 3rd comes and passes, regardless of outcome, covid will be over because this is all about the election. It doesn't seem to me that's correct. It seems to me that you have a lot of people that are aggrandizing their power uh, throughout the response to the pandemic, the lockdown policies. Uh, both in terms of tech billionaires as well as in terms of status at every level. And they're not going to be so interested to relinquish their newfound power, regardless of who's in the White House.
7: I think you're quite right. I don't believe that. uh, I I think that this is uh, the lockdown sort of thing or the, the response is really a very long term thing. Some people speak of, well, once we get back to normal, I think that this is there are those who would like this to be normal. Uh, the World Health Organization has said there is no going back; that we have to learn new ways of doing things. Now, this is uh, these are sorts of things that are being again imposed from the top down, and I think they're they're quite harmful. And, uh, and it, yes, it, and, uh, it, but you're also quite right that this is uh, you know a, a shifting of power, people trying to take power.
3: Yeah, and and as we were talking about a little bit earlier in the hour with Alex Berenson, uh, those who uh, ask questions, much less disagree. Uh, are treated as deniers and to be uh, marginalized and dismissed, uh, as we see with protesters in in Berlin and London and elsewhere.
7: Sure, when I talk about the Great Reset and the things that are that are being planned, I use only almost entirely exclusively materials that come from the World Economic Forum, so I can't be accused of uh, of making things up. Um, these are simply things that are out in the open that people are uh, people are talking about doing. The, uh, if uh, listeners want to see the sorts of things that are being talked about, you simply go to the World Economic Forum uh, website and uh, type in, you know, do a search on Great Reset. There's more material than you could ever read. Um, they're, they're, they're quite upfront about some of the things they're doing.
3: He is Professor Charles Steele. He's associate professor at Hillsdale College where he holds the Herman and Suzanne Detweiler chair in economics. And uh, his piece, Great Reset, poses greatest uh, proposes great danger uh, check out that conversation also at the Heartland Institute's uh, website heartland.org Professor Steele thanks so much for joining us Appreciate it.
7: well thank you
8: okay.
0: you must to the Dan Proft show on the Salem radio Network
3: Welcome back to the show. I I just got to go back uh, to the top of the hour in our discussion of John DeBerry, the state rep from Memphis, and Vicki Osterweil, the uh, author of In Defense of Looting. I I, I think the contrast is particularly salient, not necessarily because there's a lot of people who subscribe to Vicki Osterweil's perspective. This Marxist of looting, the silliness, just as it is the case with Nicole Hannah-Jones and her symb- looting is symbolic taking and so forth. But I don't think there's an appreciation for who the left really is and what they really want. And they're telling you. They tell you on the Black Lives Matter website. They tell you in White Fragility, Robin DiAngelo's bestseller. They tell you right here, Vicki Osterweil in her book in defensive looting. I mean, for example, from her book. It's actually a Republican myth that has over the last 20 years really crawled into even leftist discourse that the small business owner must be respected, that the small business owner creates jobs and is part of the community. That's actually a right wing myth. Uh, The courage to come out against the small business owner, operator, the entrepreneur, the job creator. That's a myth in the sense that that does not absolve them of a redistribution or as to use her Marxist nomenclature, mass expropriation of their work product. That's where it's at. Now, there's also some fun comments if you go to the Amazon book review, like this one. I gave it two stars instead of one because while it is empty-headed garbage, it was a bargain since I shoplifted it. (laughs) (laughs) Putting it into practice, right? Vicki Osterwal, I can't be upset about that. I can't even believe she's charging for it on Amazon. This should be a a, complimentary pamphlet, right? Well, now uh, to to close, to close the hour, uh, because this was such a uh, powerful speech that, State Representative De, um, John DeBerry gave, State Representative from Memphis. Um, remember, we left uh, the, the first segment this hour with him asking, what kind of people have we become? And he uh, offers in closing sort of a restatement of that question with some additional context.
4: Peaceful protest ends peacefully. Anarchy ends in chaos And what we see happening right now, any of us with any common sense, any common sense whatsoever, know that what we see is not peaceful. So we can continue to fool ourselves and mix with words and use rhetoric and public relations in order to frost this stuff over and put a nice picture on what we see that is frightening. Frightening? I have a nephew who is a policeman who talked about getting attacked the other night. You're telling me that somebody has the right to throw feces and urine in the face of those that we as taxpayers pay to protect us? And that's okay? What has happened to us? If we don't get this right right now, I've got grandchildren I don't want to see the country. We're going to have 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. If we don't start acting like we got some guts, right now, brethren, sister, and friends, colleagues, right now. Right now.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the program. Follow us at danproftshow.com where you get podcasts of the program. Also on social media, at Dan Prof Show or at danproft. Turning to the world of sports, professional sports that is, over the weekend, uh, the Bucks and the Orlando Magic, Milwaukee Bucks, Orlando Magic, uh, played their game that had to be rescheduled after the Milwaukee Bucks refused to play last week, sparking a cancellation of games in the NBA. Courtesy of Adam Silver, who uh, was brought to us from some planet far, far away to be the NBA commissioner, uh, and uh, George Hill, uh, outstanding shooting guard for the Bucks. You may remember him as an Indiana Pacer as well. Uh, He uh, was not on the sidelines during the national anthem cameras caught him uh, in the um, locker room area, just outside locker room area, but behind the court waiting for the national anthem to be completed before he joined his teammates on court. He uh, was asked why he wasn't out there with the rest of the Bucks for the anthem. And he told the media, quote, you want the honest truth? I take a blank every time before the game. I've been doing it the last four years. If you go back and watch any previous, any footage of our previous games before we came down here to this bubble, that's what I do before the game. It so happened that you guys were snoozing in the hallways and caught me coming back from my pregame ritual of uh, dropping the kids off at the pool. That's my characterization. It's what I always do. It's the honest truth, really. So you've never been present for the anthem? I'd like to go back and review the tape. Sounds like a load of, well, you know what, to me, particularly given the posture of the Milwaukee Bucks, in response to the police involved shooting of Jacob Blake, uh, Steve Malanga writing the City Journal had a good uh, recap on what's happening in the world of sports with their boycott of earlier games this week to protest the police shooting of Jacob Blake athletes in the NBA and Major League Baseball have crossed a bridge they may find difficult to return from. Modern professional athletes are wealthier, staggeringly so, and more popular than previous generations of sports figures. With their entourages, security forces, and legions of adoring social media followers, they kind of live in a bubble. They become more dogmatic, more certain of their righteousness, and more dismissive of those who don't agree with them. On social media and in polls, they get some support for their activism, but it's clear that they're leaving plenty of other people behind. Sports leagues and teams never had to deal with political partisanship as a filter for attracting fans. Up until recently, sports united people of different political persuasions. Now we have whole leagues embracing questionable political messages designed to offend and alienate large segments of their target audience. Yeah, which is basically everyone. Well, um, I think Malanga's onto something there. Because I'll tell you what, as somebody who shares season tickets with virtually every Chicago sports, for every Chicago sports team, I'm talking Bears, Bulls, White Sox, Cubs, Blackhawks. I'm done. I'm dumping them all even as much of a diehard White Sox fan as I am, I'm sick of it. I'm not going to be lectured to by ignoramuses who are good at uh, throwing or hitting a baseball, shooting a basketball, even the PGA, although this weekend in Olympia fields was great in Chicago, but uh, Cameron champ with the one black lives matter shoe, you know, that whole business, if it gets much beyond that, I'll click that off too and just live my life without LeBron James and the whole lot of them. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Judd Garrett. He's a writer of the blog Objectivity is the Objective and former Dallas Cowboys running back and coach. Judd, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having
9: me. I appreciate
3: it. So what do you think? Uh, do you think that uh, professional sports leagues uh, are doing themselves a great disservice? They may find that um, they're going to be facing a new financial reality, the combination of no fans because of COVID, and by the way, those cardboard cutout or virtual fans are just just bizarre. Um, uh, and now uh, they may not find fans not coming back after covid because of the political posturing they're doing.
9: Yeah. I mean, sadly, that's the reality. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've come across. And, and you know, since I've been writing my blog, you know, people reaching out to me, emailing me, texting me, expressing that exact sentiment that you know, they're done with sports. You know, and it's sad because sports is a great thing. I mean, I love sports, and, and you know, it's been my whole life, but it's a shame that, that they're alienating their fans. There's a way that I believe that they can get their messages out without the, the walking off the court and disrespecting the flag and all that other things that are driving people away. And, and, and in the end, they're shooting themselves in the foot because they're going to end up feeling it you know, in
8: their
3: paychecks, in their pocketbooks. And, you know, it's not just the athletes. Uh, It's important to note. It's also coaches like Greg Popovich, uh, the Spurs, and to a lesser extent Steve Kerr the Warriors uh, in the NBA in particular that have just – they're just over the edge. Uh, And, um, I mean, they're also over the edge and out of their depth. I mean, these people are saying things that uh, just have no basis in reality. LeBron James may be the most uh, high-profile offender – of that standard, but uh, Popovich, Kerr, others not helping.
9: Uh, no, no question about it. I, mean, I, I did a post yesterday about um, you know, Ryan Cadahill, and you know, he said, you know, our attention was founded on racist ideas. I mean, you know, if you've read our Constitution, if you read our Bill of Rights, if you've read the Declaration of Independence, they're, they're, there's not an ounce of racism in any of it. So to, just to throw out a, a comment like that is very irresponsible and dangerous. And and, and sadly, uh, you know, a lot of these these players, you know, are, are talking on uh, about things that that they don't wholly, you know, know about. And, you know, I, I tend to give some of these people a little bit of a benefit of the doubt that that I think that their heart's in the right place, but they they're just not fully fully aware of of everything that's going
3: on. Well, I mean, you know, look, I mean, it's, it's, and, and, and again, I don't want to do the whole dumb jock thing. Cause that's silly. There's a lot of smart guys and women that play professional sports, but uh, you know, they're not insulated from the culture either. And just like people who think differently are afraid to speak up. I mean, if you play in the NBA and you have people like LeBron James leading the charge, you have coaches like Greg Popovich, Steve Kerr leading the charge. Then you're going to just sort of keep your head down and play basketball, probably if you disagree, and, and the same in some of the other leagues.
9: Yeah, I mean, no, no question. I think I think you know, you know, the whole concept of the bubble is, is a little bit of a metaphor. I think I think they're very insulated. They're they're in their echo chambers. You know, I you know, my post about LeBron, and, and I'm not trying to kill LeBron at all, but I mean, there's a level of hypocrisy that that he has. I mean, he he talks about you know, how he couldn't enjoy the playoff win, you know, after finding out about the Jacob Blake shooting, and, and you know, fine, I mean, he, he, that may be a legitimate emotion, I'll, I'll, I'll give him that, but my question was, okay, if that's such a tragedy and that brings up such such outrage and, and you're going to walk off the court and not play and want to not, you know, finish the season because of that shooting, why isn't there the same outrage for the killing of, Jamar Jones, a seven year old kid who was gunned down in Philadelphia a few weeks ago, or the Cannon Hinton incident where, you know, North Carolina, where he was shot execution style. Right. And, and, and the list goes on and on about all these things that, that are happening and shootings and deaths that are just as tragic, maybe even more as tragic than the Jacob Blake shooting. And there, there, there's no, there's no, not even close to a similar outrage. They don't even, they don't even mention it. And those types of shootings, those types of killings, happen so much more in our society than what happened to Jacob Blake. I mean,
3: uh-huh. just,
9: yeah. just just in the city of Chicago alone, there have been 40 kids who have been gunned down in the streets. Most of them are black. And no one says a word about it. They want to talk about police shootings. That's fine. But they don't want to talk about all these, all these other killings. And to me, what's happening is people look at it like myself and say the fact that there's such a disconnect, the fact that there's such hypocrisy, to me, almost discredits what LeBron James is trying to do and makes it seem like it's motivated more political than actually trying to save black people's
3: lives. Well, there's no question it is. And I wonder how much you think is driven by the media, uh, not the, just the political press corps, which uh, is, you know, comes over the top across sector, but also the sports press corps, which is left, too, with maybe the exception of you and the guys at OutKick, like Whitlock and Clay Travis. I mean, the 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 sports press corps is just as a left, left as the political press corps in D.C., and so that drives uh, players as well because they want to be the subjects of good press, not bad press.
9: No question, they're they're, they're, they're yeah, they're, they're going. That's that's a little bit of the echo chamber. That's what they're hearing. That's what they're appealing to. That's that's what's going to get them good marks in the press. But again. They're always hearing about the Jacob Blake shooting. They're not hearing about all these other killings. They're not, you know, you know what I'm saying. So they're they're insulated to only certain issues because that's what the left leaning press is presenting these players. So it, it, it's it's a little bit of understandable why they are where they are because of where the press is.
3: He is Jud Garrett. He's the writer of the blog Objectivity is the Objective. He's a former Dallas Cowboy running back and coach. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
9: Well, thanks for having me. Take care.
3: Coming up, we're going to return to our conversation about street violence in America's big cities. Also, a little bit of discussion about China policy with the Heritage Foundation's Jim Carafano. Stay tuned.
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, It wasn't just in Portland where you have incitement to riot, where you have advocacy for violence, violence against police officers, violence against Trump supporters. There were shots fired at a Trump caravan in Los Angeles that LAPD is investigating. And in Washington, D.C., you had this individual take the microphone at a Black Lives Matter rally, I guess you call it, uh, in the middle of town. Uh, Muriel Bowser, the mayor of D.C., has gotten more of a pass than she deserves with what's happening in D.C., that's going to start changing as long as she allows individuals like this one to lord over the streets.
8: I'm at the point where I'm ready to put these police in a f***ing grave. I'm at the point where I want to burn the White House down. I want to take it to the senators. I want to take it to the Congress. I want to take the fight to them. And at the end of the day, if they ain't going to hear us, we burn them the f*** down. I'm one that talk real shit. I talk it in New York, and I talk it in D.C. The same way I police up in New York, I cops up here in D.C. The same way I bust police in the head in New York, I bust police in the head in D.C. Now, it's a lot of people, and I'm going to be honest, it's a lot of people that's on this front line. And one of the things that I always say, don't get on this front line if you ain't gonna fight. Don't get on this front line if you ain't gonna take no hit. Don't get on this front line when the police push up, you push back. If you're gonna be on this front line and them racist, nasty, punk police is pushing up, you push the
3: Mm hmm. This on a weekend where uh, four officers were shot, one murdered in St. Louis. Uh, there's video that you may have seen. I will uh, tweet out as well of a Minneapolis police officer hit in the back of the, the head with a, a, a the lid of a garbage can that was uh, thrown at him. He's down on the ground calling for help on his radio as a Black Lives Matter types and Antifa Jacobins are standing over him laughing and basically saying you get what you deserve much like this guy we're going to burn the police down we're going to take them down i f up police in new york i f up police in dc and so the uh discussion about what president trump should do as we've been having on a rolling basis over the last several months as the violence has intensified should he uh just offer help and then hey if you want the help great if you don't want the help okay fine um then you'll let things uh, go however you want them to go. It's your city. It's your state. He has a responsibility, duty, duty to enforce federal law, to protect federal property. And so the dispatching of federal law enforcement with respect to courthouses that were under siege, statues, federal property that was under siege. But uh, does he have a responsibility, moral one, not constitutional one, to do more? Or as the Wall Street Journal opined, should he stand down? Should he tell his supporters to stand down, even if they're peaceful, and uh, let the cities be what they're going to be. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, our weekly visit, Vice President of the Catherine Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of books, including Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Uh, Well, you wrote a piece in Fox News that we uh, talked uh, recently that we talked a bit about uh, last week about why you think this is going to continue. And I think you made a bunch of coaching points as to why it's likely to continue Uh, But if it is uh, just starting from the premise that it is, then what should Trump's posture be? I mean, it should it be more than tweeting and overtures of assistance? Should it be uh, more aggressive than that? Or should he lay back and say, I've offered help. And if Ted Wheeler and Jenny Durkin and Jacob Fry and Lori Lightfoot and on down the line, if they don't want my help, they don't want the federal government's help, then they don't want it.
1: Yeah, I think there's. I think there's a middle ground there. First of all, we have to recognize the federal government has limited assets. If you take every federal law enforcement officer, add them up together, it's slightly more than the police force of New York City. So it's, it's not that many. And, and many of them have day jobs. They're guarding the border. They're arresting illegal aliens. They're protecting federal property. So there's a limited capacity to surge federal law enforcement. There's also limits what you can do with the National Guard. The National Guard is, when it's deployed in the domestic scene, is largely there to provide assistance to law enforcement and to guard stuff. So they're they're not really going to go after this. So the the root of this is the organized criminal activity, and and the reason why not so it's so dangerous is not just that it's criminal, it's that for some, you know, that's not radical enough. And we get the shootings and the killings. And then and then for some, this this is an excuse for for counter-revolutionary violence. You get the opposite. So it really does fuel insecurity in our neighborhoods. So what can the federal government do? There's a couple of things. One is they can enforce federal law. So you can selectively deploy federal law enforcement where you see the greatest threat and the greatest need. To enforce federal law, that's one thing you can do. Um, if if state and local authorities are not prosecuting crimes uh, and they are, are human uh, and they are civil rights violations, the federal government can step in and, and and do a special prosecutor. Again, not unlimited capacity can't do that everywhere, but you can send in a special prosecutor on a limited basis, and you can start putting people in jail on your own. And the third thing you can do, and to me, which is the most important, mm-hmm. is you can launch RICO investigations because organizing criminal activity isn't itself a crime. And a federal RICO investigation is going to enable you to find the organizers, the people that are funding this, the people that are providing logistical support, roll them up and, and start to disaggregate the, the organizations that are fueling the, the violence and the rioting in our cities.
3: Regarding uh, following the money, you've noted uh, in your piece in Fox News that I referenced that uh, these groups are well resourced. So uh, the approach that should be taken, uh, I think you're leading to the argument that uh, there need to be RICO cases brought against Antifa and other such organizations that engage in this sort of organized violence, just as there were, just as RICO was used uh, in a bygone era to uh, break up mafia crime families.
1: So there's two issues there. One is, and we've seen a lot of this, which is organized criminal activity Conducting under under disguise, you know, just like the Viet Cong would go into a village and say, "I'm just a simple farmer." Mm
7: -hmm. We have
1: people at riots pretending to be um, groups of mothers, uh, press wearing press wearing things that say "press" and are actually just rioters. Uh, We have groups like this, so they are hiding. Which again is a you hide. Why do you hide? You hide because you know what you're doing is an organized criminal activity, and and the other thing is, is I think you're right. Follow the money. So. You know, we've even seen evidence online of people saying GoFundMe campaigns and GoFundMe campaigns asking for money for vests and helmets and all things which you only need if you are intent on being offensive and going into a rioting situation. I mean, if you don't need all the safety gear, if your goal is not to go out and hurt people and riot and fight with the police. um, So the problem here is a lot of this money is coming from. People, well-meaning people who think they're just helping out and corporations who are donating tens of millions of dollars to groups. And they have no idea where that money is going and what it's being.
3: When we come back with Lieutenant Jim Carafano, I want to uh, talk more about uh, the underwriting of these uh, organizations like Black Lives Matter. And uh, if there should be any consequences for the big corporations that are donating money, I would suggest as sort of extortion money. More with Carafana when we come back.
0: Listen to the podcast of the show at danproffshow.com.
3: We're back with the Heritage Foundation's Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano. Before the break, we're talking about who's funding the organized rioting and violence happening in our big cities, uh, who's, organize, who's funding the organizers of it, essentially, including corporate America, paying extortion money, you know, uh, leave us alone and uh, here's a check. Um, and, and that's actually um, a sickening cowardice as far as I'm concerned. And those corporations sh- should be held out too. I mean, look, if you're financing criminal activity, wittingly, And you just have a reason, well, I want to do it to signal to my customers. I want to do it because I'm afraid I don't want to be boycotted. Then maybe whistle in some C-suite executive, too, when the money that he authorizes or she authorizes goes to fund violence in the streets of America. I mean, I think this should be expansive and people shouldn't be allowed to get away with ignorance as a a defense for breaking the law.
1: Let me give you my, my favorite example of hypocrisy, which is the church on Lafayette Square which proudly purports We Support Black Lives Matters" sign in every corner of the yard. That church is boarded up. It is surrounded by a chain link fence. <laughs> and the chain link fence is protected by a concrete barrier to protect the church against Black Lives Matter,
3: well, I protect them against peaceful protesters, Jim. I don't understand.
1: I mean, this is a hypocrisy. I, I, I really was upset about the NBA, you know, protests in the playoffs, where they're demanding justice. When you know, look in, and I said this with every single shooting incident. If you really want justice, then you have to demand an investigation that's appropriate and in the end transparent, that does not happen in 24 hours. And for a national sports association to say, well, we are protesting that justice isn't being done here, and we're not even 24 hours into the incident, we don't even really know all the facts, is actually fueling and enabling and normalizing violence and causing people to go to the street and take the law into their own hands. So we have the National Basketball Association essentially promoting vigilanteism.
3: Uh, I wanted to um, talk about something uplifting since so much of this is depressing, and that is Chen Chang, the Chinese dissident who spoke at the Republican National Convention last week. It didn't really matter the venue. What mattered is what he had to say about the Chinese Communist Party that is um, the, the autocratic rulers of that country. Although it was noteworthy, it happened at the RNC and not the DNC. Uh, here's uh, some of what uh, Mr. Guang Chang had to say
7: Standing up
3: to tyranny
7: is not easy. I know. When I spoke out against China's one child policy and other injustices, I was prosecuted, beaten, sent to prison and put under house arrest by the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. In April 2005, 2012, I escaped and was given shelter in the American embassy in Beijing. I'm forever grateful to the American people for welcoming me and my family.
3: This is... um an illustration of the we love the Chinese people we don't like the Chinese communists and what they're doing to that country and their people and that's the distinction uh, and uh, if I had the capacity to feel human emotion Jim I would have been moved to tears by what mr. Guang had to say
1: um, you know I'm going to say I, I met him and we had the honor of hosting him at the Heritage Foundation and, and really hearing his brave and inspiring personal story and and he really is a, just a, a true true hero you know, this really, in many ways, ties back to the problem we were just talking about. I mean, here we have these incredibly unbelievable human rights abuses in in China, and, you know, people just don't seem interested, uh, You know, that, which leads me to believe, and you know, particularly the NBA, which does a lot of business in China, and they have no interest in, in addressing human rights issues in China, but they're all upset about, you know, Black Lives Matter, but they're not really upset about Black Lives Matter, because if they did, they would be condoning and encouraging violence um, we have substituted politics for morality. Uh, and then we have taken our politics, which we have substituted morality. And we, and we say that that trumps rule of law. Well, you know, fundamentally, that is a definition of fascism. And and I, so you said, there's no uplifting story here. you know, I think the uplifting story is I don't think most of the country is with this,
9: Mm -hmm. you know, and
1: not every city is being burned to the ground. Uh, and even in DC, you know, the mayor, for all the mayor, you know, when we had this stuff in Lafayette Square, they called out the National Guard. Uh, they actually, even though she didn't acknowledge it, everybody cooperated together. They crushed the violence. The only reason why we had violence this weekend was that, you know, the the yahoos from Portland and Seattle, actually people saw them. They flew into town and they organized violence around uh, the president's speech and then the Martin Luther King um, demonstrations, and my guess is they'll all be left and we'll be back to normal tomorrow. So I think the, the good news is, is most of America doesn't actually believe in a radical extremist agenda that's implemented by violence.
3: He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP at the Catherine and Shelby collum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. The show. Welcome back to the show. So let's talk about what happened in Portland over the weekend and uh, some other cities as well as the violence continues to spiral. But perhaps uh, no more so than in Portland where you've had Antifa and uh, other associated vandals lay siege to the city for three months uninterrupted. Pretty much, despite promises from the elected officials there. Kate Brown, the governor of Oregon, I'll send in the state police to backstop the Portland police. So we don't need federal support. OK, fine. All right. Well, uh, a Trump supporter gone down in the streets of Portland over the weekend. Uh, a, the suspect that police are investigating uh, at, per reporting on Monday is somebody who's described himself as 100% Antifa. So we'll see how that investigation proceeds and um, if uh, charges are ultimately brought in uh, the murder of that Trump supporter. Because for the first time, you had uh, Trump supporters rally in Portland as well. These caravans, not just in Portland, but also in L.A., there was a caravan of cars. Oh, and by the way, there was fires uh, there were shots fired at that caravan that being investigated by the LAPD, you know, this uh, caravan on land like you've seen in caravan uh, on water for Trump in South Florida. Uh, there's actually one plan for the chain of lakes up in northern Illinois. And I was part of a Trump rally uh, in uh, Exurban Chicago over the weekend that featured former Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark and RNC finance chairman. Todd Ricketts, who's part owner of the Cubs, the Ricketts family, Uh, Steve Moore from the Wall Street Journal, a friend of the show and others. It was positively peaceful and and uh, uplifting, really, Uh, and uh, uneventful. Imagine that. But when it comes to uh, entering territory that's occupied by the Jacobins, it's a different story, as we've seen. And so what should be done? Wall Street Journal suggests that not only should uh, Trump stand down in terms of doing anything other than calling for peace and offering federal support for cities from Portland to New York and everywhere in between, or Portland to D.C. really and everywhere in between, um, but uh, he should call on his supporters not to rally even peacefully. In cities like Portland or Seattle, so as to minimize the opportunity for violence, has that really minimized the opportunity for violence? I disagree with the journal here. Has it really? Was there violence in in uh, Chap, uh, CHAP uh, yeah, uh, the the autonomous zone, uh, Chaz slash Chop in Seattle where two people were murdered? I mean, it doesn't take. Trump supporters overt Trump supporters to incite violence. They're not inciting violence. You have people looking to incite violence. And if it's not going to be directed at Trump supporters, it'll be directed at police. If it's not going to be directed at police, it's going to be directed at just law abiding citizens trying to get on about their lives, as we saw really on the verge of it with Rand Paul coming out and his wife coming out of the RNC last week with a woman in that D.C. restaurant who is you know, being screamed at to raise the fist in in uh, support of Black Lives Matter. Uh, To me, Wall Street Journal is advocating for the same sort of appeasement that we're otherwise criticizing when it is appeasement of the mob, appeasement of violence, of looting, of vandalism by big city mayors. So, no, I don't think so. And by the way, just so we're clear on what happened over the weekend in Portland with the murder of that Trump supporter, there's video of it, and uh, we have the audio, of course. Listen to how the person is identified before the shooting starts. We got a Trumpster. We got a hey,
4: there. Me. Pulling it out. Right
8: here. Are you okay? okay. No. Jay! Okay. help help.
3: Yeah, and by the time the ambulance came, it was too late. Later in the evening, as word got around that a Trump supporter had been murdered, this is how one antifa individual reacted while speechifying through a blowhorn on the streets of Portland. Is there any other way?
8: We're oh Everybody needs to realize what's going on in these oh streets. Our oh community, God. our community can hold its own
5: without the police. We can take out the top on our
8: own. Because I am not sad that a fascist
5: died tonight.
3: Yeah. Not sad that an effing fascist died tonight, and a celebration over that statement. And Ted Wheeler, like Joe Biden, says, "You know what's the problem in Portland?" The problem is President Trump. It's not Ted Wheeler. It's not Antifa. It's not lawlessness. It's Donald Trump offering federal law enforcement support like he dispatched previously. And as part of his duty to execute federal laws to protect federal property, courthouse in Portland statues. But that's provocative. Appeasement's not provocative, according to Ted Wheeler and Joe Biden. Ted Wheeler on the prospect again of federal support for restoring order in Portland.
4: Do you seriously wonder,
5: Mr. President, why this is the first time in decades that America has seen this level of violence? It's you who have created the hate and the division. It's you who have not found a way to say the names of black people killed by police officers even as people in law enforcement have. And it's you who claimed that white supremacists are good people. Your campaign of fear is as anti-democratic as anything you've done to create hate and vitriol in our beautiful country. You've tried to divide us more than any other figure in modern history. And now you want me to stop the violence that you helped create.
3: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, 90 days in Ted Wheeler. I mean, he is a caricature. He I mean, he is a caricature of Kyle McLaughlin playing the mayor of Portland in the show, Portlandia, a guy sitting on a bouncy ball, you know, one of these Grinnell. I mean, but that's the spin now that you're getting. All of us are less safe because Donald Trump can't do the job of the American president. That was Joe Biden's response. Well, we'll pick it up here. uh, We'll pick it up right there when we come back to close out the hour. Just a little bit more in terms of the Democrats' pivot now that they know that they're suffering in the polls as a result of appeasing violence and lawlessness in America's cities.
0: Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
3: Welcome back to the show. We were talking about uh, the response from mayors like Ted Wheeler, Portland mayor, to the prospect of President Trump's sending in federal law enforcement to help those mayors get control of their cities. No interest, no interest from Ted Wheeler, just as there was little interest from Jenny Durkin in Seattle, just as there was little interest from Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, at least initially, just as there was little interest from Governor Tony Evers of Wisconsin, as it pertains to Kenosha, at least initially. And so the pivot now that uh, some of the polling uh, recent polling suggests that Trump has moved ahead of Biden, including outside the margin of error in some of the battleground polls I've seen has come to a dead even uh, nationally uh, with respect to a Rasmussen poll that was taken. Now that they know they're atrophying under the weight of this uh, willful blindness towards street violence, Joe Biden is coming out of the basement and they're trying to reposition, right? Just as they did with COVID where it's Donald Trump's lockdown policies that we support are responsible for the joblessness, uh, you know, he uh, the economy is weaker under President Obama and President Obama. It wasn't a president Obama. under President Trump. Look at the jobless rate. The result of policies we supported. Here we go again. Look at the violence in America's cities run by us for 50 years, 100 years in the case of Chicago. That's uh, Donald Trump is making America less safe as he offers law enforcement help and they appease the mobsters. And so this was that yapping little terrier Chuck Todd's approach to aid the effort on Meet the Press with White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. This is Donald Trump's America.
2: I wanted to start with this, that the president on Thursday night uh, painted a picture of what he said would be Joe Biden's America. And I, and I look at the violence this week, Mr. Meadows. This is in Donald Trump's America. Um, how much responsibility should voters be giving the president for his inability um, to, to, to keep the streets safe? Well, I mean, you can try to reframe it that way, Chuck, but that's just not uh, accurate. I can tell you that when we look at Kenosha uh, in the phone calls that were made to the governor of Wisconsin, uh, we we offered help. Help was denied. You know, you want to talk about Donald Trump's uh, uh, America. Most of Donald Trump's America is peaceful. It is a, a Democrat-led city in Portland that we're talking about this morning who just yesterday, denied help once again mm-hmm. from the federal government.
3: And it was Chuck Todd, just recently, the first iteration when the rioting broke out across America, that uh, and, and the New York Times, and all of the other handmaidens to the cultural Marxist left, that were saying, what, the prospect of federal law enforcement uh, being deployed to cities like Portland and others, the prospect of even federal troops. Federal law enforcement, much as federal troops, that was authoritarian. This was dictatorial on behalf of Trump. Now, as these mayors let violence run wild in their cities, put the police on the on their heels. Now it's Trump's fault for not keeping the city safe. Ah, uh, the intellectual consistency—it's something to behold, isn't it?
0: This is the Dan Proft Show.
3: Twitter at Dan Prof and at Dan prof show and here's what um people inclined to violence do on the streets we're seeing it play out in real time tragically Portland over the weekend Trump supporters clashing of sorts with antifa and the elements that have controlled Portland streets for some three months this is what happens when one Trumpster, as they say is identified
8: hey, got couple around we Right He's it out. Right here. Are you okay? Okay. Okay. I mean, watch out, bro. Oh, she's trying to help him. She's trying to help him. So lay out.
3: There is a um, video of that shooting. You see uh, the shooter and some other individual run after they shot and killed this guy on the streets of Portland. Later in the evening, uh, Antifa had an Antifa gathering on the streets of Portland, the streets they control. This uh, Antifa member had this to say as word got around about the killing.
8: If y'all aren't angry, you're not paying attention. If y'all are not angry, you're not with me. Yes. Everybody wake up. We're with you. Everybody needs to realize what's going on community our community can hold us on without the police we can take the top our own i am not sad that a fascist died tonight
3: yeah. i'm not sad that a fascist died tonight was the reaction and so now what are democrats to do as they're finally realizing that uh, the majority of the country overwhelming majority of the country is not down with violence and lawlessness on the streets of urban centers or uh, not so urban centers like Kenosha. Uh, Mark Meadows was on Meet the Press with that yapping little terrier, Chuck Todd. And uh, that's the play that Chuck Todd uh, was trying to make, as other Dem politicians were, all working a concert with one another. Meadows wasn't having it.
2: I want to just start with this. The, the president on Thursday night uh, painted a picture of what he said would be Joe Biden's America. And I, and I look at the violence this week, Mr. Meadows, This is in Donald Trump's America. Um, How much responsibility should voters be giving the president for his inability to keep the streets safe? Well, I mean, you you can try to reframe it that way, Chuck, but that's just not uh, accurate. I can tell you that when we look at Kenosha uh, in the phone calls that were made to the governor of Wisconsin, uh, we we offered help. Help was denied. You know, you want to talk about Donald Trump's uh, uh, America most of Donald Trump's America is peaceful. It is a, a Democrat-led city in Portland that we're talking about this morning, who just yesterday denied help once again mm-hmm. from the federal government.
3: And of course, Ted Wheeler followed suit, uh, a la Chuck Todd, in suggesting that the problem in Portland is Donald Trump. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Indiana Senator Mike Braun, Republican from the Hoosier State. Senator Braun, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
6: Hey, good to be back on.
3: So uh, is, uh, is Trump uh, responsible for the violence on the streets of America?
6: Yeah, you got to realize that in the time I've been there a year and a half, a little bit more, uh, the Democrats, their forte is taking facts and spinning them into something that they want you to hear. I mean, let's look at it. These places have been run three, four, five decades by the same governance, and all of a sudden you want to turn that around and blame it on someone else. Trump was the personification, the embodiment of people fed up and frustrated with that kind of spin and what we've been seeing in the cities. And we got to be careful because we generally get outmaneuvered by the other side when they try to spin it, just like Chuck Todd did with Mark Meadows. Mark is one of the more astute, individuals i've met out there in terms of not falling for it it is a battle we're going to be in and trump's best chance for getting reelected is being played out on tv night after night in these places that have gone to lawlessness and lost that's why you get the real estate business as busy as it is people are moving away they're voting with their feet not only for their businesses but also where they want to live
3: Uh, Something interesting happening in northwest Indiana, you've had uh, a handful of mayors and uh, uh, the word is that more may be following leaving their party, uh, leaving the Democrat Party and coming over to the Republican Party, ostensibly in part because they no longer recognize their party as it pertains to the maintenance of peace in communities.
6: I think that's smart and that's happened throughout indiana not just in the northwest where i'm from the southern third of the state is arguably culturally and fiscally more conservative than any part of the state used to all be blue dog democrats everyone has basically switched county by county to a party that does reflect main street middle america and you're going to find that even in the northwest we found there was an appetite for that when i ran back in 2018 and i think we carved out more Votes out of that first congressional district than any Republican had before for the things that are playing out in front of us. When you're talking about defunding the police, cop free zones, condoning this kind of violence, uh, I was invited to the um, acceptance speech on Thursday. We had stuff going on in the state. I couldn't go. Look at Rand Paul and his wife leaving that if he hadn't been surrounded by security, he claims he would have been, you know, taken out possibly.
3: Uh, I want to ask you about this uh, bit of controversy you were involved in a few weeks back when you seemed to make a, uh, a peace offering in the direction of Black Lives Matter. I mean, I think it got twisted up a bit, but I just wanted to get your reviews here uh, on our show about what you think about Black Lives Matter, the organization that's being funded by corporate America that's being held up by all the professional sports leagues with maybe the exception of the PGA what you think about them as a force for positive improvements in this country or a force for division and devolution into some of the lawlessness and violence we've witnessed?
6: That is very simple, and I was disappointed with Tucker Carlson in that he didn't check the information out. He clipped a snippet to where the entire discussion was about the movement in general and peacefully protesting. Obviously, you've seen that's crossed the line over the last couple months, and there is a distinction between Antifa blm.org and what began as what any of us should be okay with and that's if you've got a grievance peacefully protested obviously that's been co-opted by radical in this case a marxist uh, group that uh, espouses points of view that are so far off of mainstream and what this country's about it ju- it shows you how hot the political environment was and when it comes to Uh, qualified immunity and what the police do they've got to be protected who in the heck would suit up for a job that's gotten that dangerous and that is that important on the other hand uh, the few bad apples that do surface now and then need to be held accountable but it's gone so far from that to where we're now dealing with the other side trying to generalize this across our society if we do not have police that feel that come into the job that they're doing with protection, and when we came out, that was an attempt to make it clearer and to try to eliminate frivolous lawsuits. Tucker didn't you know really research that either it's a moot point it is so quickly pivoted from that. To law and order and the craziness that's going on, as long as I'm there, I've weighed in more on reforming the cost of health care. I get involved in issues because we normally get outmaneuvered. We're slow-footed as Republicans and conservatives. Uh, I want to make sure that our voice is heard, and that means we do engage but we stick to the principles that we all believe in.
3: Uh, Speaking of law and order, uh, just uh, on another topic of law and order and accountability at the uh, national level for bad actors, like perhaps the former head of the FBI, perhaps the former head of the CIA and Mm -hmm. others, uh, do you expect that Durham investigation to be completed? Do you expect... um, whatever is going to be recommended to be recommended here uh, before, maybe even maybe even in the next 24 hours, but certainly before the election? I
6: do, because all along, two individuals in the Senate, uh, Ron Johnson uh, from Wisconsin, who uh, heads the Homeland Security Committee, and Lindsey Graham, heading the judiciary, had some hearings, and I knew that they were going to occur. And, uh, and Graham's, I think, is over. Johnson's is still in process so I think we're gonna see more from him also Durham's been working on this for a long time Barr has said over the last few weeks that it's likely to be released at least a month or so ahead of the election and I think that needs to be because we have to have that information out there so that it's fully vetted to show what was going on when some insiders in our own government looks like they tried to weigh in to thwart trump's campaign
3: he is indiana senator mike braun republican from the hoosier state senator braun thanks again for joining us appreciate it
6: thanks for having me on
0: Posing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the show, picking up on our conversation with uh, Senator Mike Braun uh, and heading back to Kenosha. uh, The uh, governor of Wisconsin, Tony Evers, uh, we mentioned previously, like so many of these other Dem Socialist politicians that are completely cowered by the uh, cultural Marxist violent left. Penned a letter to President Trump on uh, notice that President Trump would be visiting Kenosha on Tuesday tomorrow and uh, perhaps a meeting with or at least speaking with Jacob Blake's family. Evers righted uh, righted. Evers wrote, uh, right, wrote, uh, Evers wrote, I'm concerned your presence will only hinder our healing. I'm concerned your presence will only delay our work to overcome division and move forward together. It's our job as elected officials to lead by example, and to be a calming presence for the people we know are hurting, mourning and trying to cope with trauma. Now is not the time for divisiveness. Now is not the time for elected officials to ignore armed militants and out of state instigators who want to contribute to our anguish. Well, who's doing that? (laughs) Excuse me, Governor. How is half of downtown Kenosha in rubble? It's because of um, armed militants and out-of-state instigators that were Trump supporters that were antagonistic towards Kenosha police, National Guardsmen. I mean, I'm sorry, who has appeased what or who has appeased whom really to induce the trauma you describe who has countenanced the destruction that has occurred. It's just remarkable, but it's consistent with the approach. I mean, going back to this uh, interview that Joe Biden gave from his basement a couple months back with this activist at, named Addie Barkin. And the question was put to him on defunding the police. And this is uh, not an edited version. I know there's some circulating online people complaining about it. not an edited version played it then play it again. What's to edit? You don't need to put your words, words in Joe Biden's mouth. He has them all. Addie Barkin putting the defund police question to Biden.
0: Instead of sending two police officers with deadly weapons to that Wendy's drive through in Atlanta, we could have sent a wellness counselor and a tow truck and then Ray's hard. Brooks would still be alive today and his three daughters would still have their daddy. Are you open to that kind of reform?
5: Yes, I propose that kind of reform. We need significantly more help. That's why I call for significant increase in funding for mental health clinics and mental health pr- providers.
3: Well, um, I mean, again, you're, that, you're the, for that reform that Eddie Barkin, by the way, his, vo- his voice is digitized, if you recall, because he's suffering from ALS, so just as a um, just context there. But uh, the, the issue, the question was, so you would be for that, rather than sending armed officers on a call, to an intoxicated man, apparently in his car in the Wendy's drive through. This is the Rayshard Brooks police involved shooting. Instead of sending armed officers, send uh, a couple of social workers, a couple of people with psych degrees or certificates. And he's, yes. I mean, that's the definition of the defund, reimagine police initiatives that are being pushed in places like Minneapolis and Denver and elsewhere. Uh, that's not confusing. And so, uh, Getting back to the Jacob Blake case, what do we know about that? What do we know about the warrant out for Jacob Blake's arrest? Now that we know police, per uh, interplay with dispatch, police knew that he had an outstanding warrant for sexual assault. Jacob Blake forbidden from going to the Kenosha home of his alleged victim from a May 3rd incident. Police dispatched following a 911 call from her saying he was there. They were aware he had an open warrant for felony sexual assault, according to dispatch records at the Kenosha Professional Police Association. Uh, The complaint obtained by the New York Post. Describes in detail what Blake is accused of doing to this woman that he knew. The victim told police she was asleep in bed. This is the May 3rd incident. She was asleep in bed with one of her children when Blake came into the room about 6 a.m. Allegedly said, I want my stuff, but he didn't use the word stuff. She told cops, now this is graphic, but I'm going to read it because you need to hear it. She told cops, Blake used his finger to sexually assault her, sniffed it and said, smells like you've been with other men, quote unquote. The officer who took her statement said she, quote, had a very difficult time telling him this and cried as she told how the defendant assaulted her. The alleged victim said Blake, quote, penetrating her digitally caused her pain and humiliation, was done without her consent. She was, quote, very humiliated and upset by the sexual assault, unquote. The alleged victim also told cops she had known Blake for eight years, claimed that he physically assaults uh, assaults her, present tense, quote, around twice a year when he drinks heavily, unquote. That's the individual who's being lionized. Who's being mythologized. Really? Um, Unemployed individual with a criminal history, an open felony sexual assault warrant. Six children. And, um, Somebody who had at least five opportunities to de-escalate the situation per the police call from this woman who is alleged to have already been victimized by Blake maybe multiple times. No less than five times. And at every turn, he escalated. I I don't understand. I repeat this because the left is repeating the mischaracterization of what you see on the video. He was there improperly. He wouldn't he wouldn't give her her car keys back. He had a physical confrontation with police. We see it. How does that start? They just attacked him and he's defending himself. Come on. Down on the ground. They try to taste him. He gets up again, non-comply, goes to the driver's side door, opens it. Officer trying to pull him back by his shirt. Reaches for a, a knife, according to according to the investigators, and then is shot. He's de-escalating, and police are escalating. That's the story of the lieutenant governor of Wisconsin, and so many others. And uh, when asked about what we understand to be true by Anderson Cooper, here's what Jacob Lake's father had to say: As
0: you know, the Kenosha Professional Police Association, which is a police union. They said that they late today said that Jacob was armed with a knife, didn't comply, that he fought with police and put an officer in a headlock. I know you aren't able to say much uh, about this, but were you aware of this? Do you, is that accurate? Some people say Brussels sprouts taste good. Um, I don't get the reference. I hate Brussels sprouts.
3: You don't want to talk about this? Uh, Some people say Brussels sprouts taste good. Right. This is his way, I guess, of saying some people say things that aren't true because he doesn't like Brussels sprouts. And so the police association there is lying. And uh, that's his way of saying they're lying without saying they're lying. Hmm. Okay, well, we'll see. Uh, and now we wait for Brussels sprouts to be uh, banned by the FDA as racist and CNN to do a town hall hosted by Don Lemon as to whether Brussels sprouts cause or just indicative of white supremacy. Can this get any more ridiculous? This is Dan Proft.
0: Offshow.com
3: Welcome back to the show. A great piece by uh, Holman Jenkins in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend about uh, California as um, one of the best examples of being the worst example right there with my home state of Illinois. Uh, He talks about California needing ideas, and he uses the delivery of power, literally keeping the lights on as one of the examples. He uh, writes about the absurdity California politicians spend much of their time obsessing about a climate change problem they can't fix. Their state accounts for less than one-tenth of one percent of global emissions. There's nothing they can do, but that doesn't stop the pantomime that there is something they can do, but it's very uneven what they want to do in furtherance of their stated environmentalism. Customers of municipally owned utilities in LA and Sacramento were spared any power outages recently because local politicians are directly in line for blame if the lights go out there. The unheralded corollary is that these utilities insist on keeping fossil fuels a big share of their mix. The LA Department of Water and Power gets 48% of its power from coal or gas. The Sacramento Municipal Utility District 54% 54% from natural gas. Compare this with 15 to 17% for the giant private utilities such as South Carolina South uh, Southern California Edison and Pacific Gas and Electric that cover much of the state. Why? Maybe because their CEOs and shareholders are more easily bullied into signing up for the state's green goals. Maybe because political accountability is attenuated across their sprawling multi-jurisdictional service areas. He makes the point, does Jenkins, that this is not a plea for public ownership or small as beautiful, but it's a, a plea for political accountability to be advanced where it's needed, where market accountability is legislative out of existence by monopoly regulation, government regulation, as is the case here. And so no power loss in L.A. and Sacramento. Meanwhile, 200,000 Pacific Gas and Electric customers across 30 counties lost power last week. More than 5 million others don't. So who's responsible? Nobody. And therein lies the perverse incentives of the government-sanctioned monopoly, as so many perverse incentives we see playing themselves out in government-centric sectors. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Don Boudreau at uh, George Mason University and Mercatus Center. Don is. He's also a contributor to uh, Cafe Hayek. Don, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. I'm happy
10: to be back, Dan.
3: You know, the California where you see big ideas, particularly in a big sector, a sector that, say, was responsible for 70% of the job creation during Obama's eight years as president, and yet opposed philosophically by those same individuals who enjoyed the benefits of the job creation from the innovation in that industry. You see it playing out in in California. Maybe these are big issues in addition to all that we have going on with respect to COVID and and violence on the streets.
10: Yeah, and and, and there's also this other thing in California, this new piece of legislation that's attempting to declare independent contractors like Uber and Lyft drivers as being employees, which would, of course, raise the cost to these companies of using these drivers, which is going to put a lot of these people out of work because they're not worth being paid what they would have to be paid. And so it's going to make tr- local transportation in California worse. It's just an office. Awful... Like my brother lives in Nevada City, California. He's always complaining about how absurd the regulations are at the state and local level in that, in, in that part of the world.
3: Uh, I wanted to, to get to your piece on um, labor unions and bargaining power, because he, here's the, the stated position of many conservatives even. Hey, I believe in the right to collectively bargain. I maybe not for public sector workers where they're on both sides of the deal, They're public sector unions, they're negotiating with the politicians, they finance and get elected. But in the private sector with the trade unions, it's an adversarial negotiation. Whatever they come up with, they come up with. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. So, um, you know, this is the appeal that conservatives make to electricians and plumbers and operating engineers and other tradesmen. Is there anything wrong with that uh, philosophical and policy approach?
10: First of all, the, the position on public sector unions is a no-brainer, obviously, they, that they're, they're corrupt by their very nature. I have no philosophical or economic objection to workers forming whatever sort of coalition they can form and using that coalition in whatever peaceful way they can. But there's a fundamental misunderstanding that most people have about labor and how wages are set. There's this belief that somehow, unless workers collectively bargained, that they won't be paid fairly. The evidence, first of all, does not show that to be true the evidence shows that workers pretty much in all sectors in markets get paid what the market says they should get paid. They're not generally underpaid. The best way to help a worker is not to join collectively together. It's to have other job options. It's it's to be able to tell your boss, look, if you don't give me a raise because I'm being paid less than I'm producing for you, I'm going to take that other job. And so these conservatives now who are praising labor unions and want to bring back, want to strengthen labor unions, they don't understand this basic economic reality. They think that unless workers can collectively bind together and bargain for higher wages, that, that workers are helpless. And that's simply untrue. If these conservatives really do believe that most American workers are underpaid, then what they should do is start their own businesses and give those workers the option to work for them. If these workers really are underpaid, that's like money on the table for an entrepreneur to come along and, and, and buy up these underpriced assets.
3: When we come back, I want to uh, uh, just continue this conversation. I have one more question to push back on, on what you were just describing. I want to get your reaction to it. More with Don Boudreaux, an economist, author, professor, and co-director of the program on the American Economy and Globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University.
8: The
0: more you listen, the more you'll know. This 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 is the Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the show, and we're speaking with Don Boudreau, who's an American economist, author, professor, and co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Also, you can find his musings at Cafe Hayek, which is a, a great blog for those interested in economic thinking, both practical and philosophical. And we were talking about uh, labor unions, particularly trade unions. And you were talking about the leverage, you, uh, the way to create leverage for better wages, Don, and the way to create leverage for better wages is to have to be in demand, <laughs> is essentially yeah. what you're saying. And that makes perfect sense when it comes to trade unions that are not public sector unions, but they do public sector work. And so then they believe in prevailing wage, for example. And, and we've seen that uh, those uh, right-to-work states versus those states that still have Trade unions, but are not right to work and aren't paying prevailing wage for public sector jobs, you know, are getting their streets paved and other public works done for, you know, 15 percent, 20 percent less than states that are closed shop and do pay prevailing wage. So how do we reconcile that with this notion that uh, trade unions are a good thing if the workers want to collectively bargain, strike deals, uh, the union with the employer when the employer is the state that really raises the cost of taxpayers?
10: No, you you can't reconcile it. The prevailing wage, that's a fancy term for a monopoly high price on labor. One problem with labor unions is when they're backed by government power, and that's on steroids when it's a public sector union. When they're backed by government power, they can raise the wage that some workers get paid. Now, what that does, in addition to raising the cost that taxpayers have to pay to get roads paved and bridges repaired and things of that sort, it pushes other workers into either unemployment or into underemployment. When you raise the wage above its market level, people who would otherwise be working and, and, and earning a nice living in those occupations are pushed out. So, prevailing wages are just a—it's it's a scheme to protect incumbent workers from having to compete against uh, less politically powerful workers. And as you point out, it, another cost is high cost to the taxpayer. So, people who are not privileged to have the government monopoly position get a double whammy. Many of them they, they lose a job at the Otherwise, we've gotten and They have to pay higher taxes in order to get their roads uh, paid and and bridges
3: repaired. It's just tough because the it's tough to make this argument to the rank and file because, you know, that's sort of this uh, bargain within the bargain. And the bargain is you have some level of job security, even though it's nothing like the public sector. If you're a carpenter, electrician, operating engineer. And you have a defined wage scale. So, you know, as you move up in years of service and, and proficiency with the job, you see these sort of salary bumps and it's very predictable and very stable if you're not completely tethered to say road construction. And so, you know, people like that, obviously, people like to be insulated a little bit from the vagaries of market competition. And it's right. just tough to say, well, you should not want to be insulated from the, those vagaries because you'll ultimately do better if you work better.
10: There's no question that unionization can help, some, can and does help some workers. The real issue is that it comes at the expense of other workers who are made worse off. And it comes at the expense when government is the buyer, is the employer comes at the expense also of the taxpayers. No question. You can help someone. If you give me more security, that means someone else somewhere. I don't know that person's name. Someone else somewhere is, is suffering unjustly.
3: I wanted to get to this uh, Barron's report of uh, out the end of last week that uh, ranks the the state of all fifty states in rank order, based on creditworthiness. This is uh, they looked at things like uh, uh, jobless rate, rainy day fund as a percentage of revenue, estimated revenue shortfall for uh, FY twenty twenty one. Topping the list, uh, the state in the best financial position, most creditworthy, worthy, Idaho. Um, Not Illinois. Not Illinois. Illinois was uh, at the top of the bottom, uh, number 50th, uh, the worst government state. And the the note by Eaton Vance, who compiled all this data, the only state that has borrowed from the municipal credit facility uh, that uh, the Fed set up as part of COVID relief 1.0. And and again, um, uh, Illinois being uh, the worst example of all the worst examples. uh, The the reckoning that's coming for, for the states and for big cities within some of these big blue states. Uh, Barron's headline in this piece was cities and states face a trillion dollar budget crunch in the not too distant future. And uh, a lot of cities, it seems, are banking on a Biden victory and then a bailout from the federal government, you know, print, print a few trillion dollars more and send it to us. Um, okay. But but short of that, uh, then what happens uh, as sort of a cautionary tale that's maybe not too far in the offing?
10: Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the term that we have for this is moral hazard. Uh, when you get to spend other people's money, and uh, it, you, you, you you don't spend it wisely, you spend too much of it. When states borrow, uh, both directly or, and when they make these promises about future, for example, future pension things, reality cannot be avoided. Uh, it, you need resources to actually pay these things off. The states do not have these resources. Maybe Idaho has enough because Idaho has been more prudent, and, and the, the other states near the top of that list. Uh, but Illinois certainly has not been. Uh, New York has not been. And so you put, Dan, your finger exactly what's going to happen. Uh, they're looking to the federal government. The only way the federal government can bail out all states is to print money. And that, that, practically speaking, that's what's going to happen. So you're going to get this debt that is paid off in cheap dollars, in phony money, uh, which will cause inflation. It's going to damage the economy significantly. Um, but it, but people don't understand this because all they they we, we too frequently look at the here and now. Oh, this is a nice government program. This is a wonderful government benefit that I'm being promised, and we'll we'll worry later about how to pay for it. Well, later is going to come, um, and it's going to come as you point out in the form of a federal bailout,
3: which will not be good. Um, do you um, t- Tyler Cohen, a colleague of yours over at uh, George Mason University, seems to suggest that. Um, Maybe inflation is not uh, something that is uh, that is necessarily in the offing or even something to worry about. It's sort of a an interesting take uh, based on after you have the federal government essentially manufacture seven trillion dollars out of thin air in the last three months. But how do you respond to uh, other free marketeers like Tyler Cohen suggesting maybe inflation is not the uh, the uh, the thing that we should be watching out for on the horizon?
10: Yeah, I, I know what Tyler's referring to. This is this is sort of in the weeds argument among economists. Uh, I, I I think inflation that's that's too high is just as bad as inflation that's that's. First of all, I don't think I don't think that inflation can be too low. Uh, now on that, I got to say I'm in a minority among modern economists. The modern economists have this notion that somehow mild inflation is a good thing. I've never understood that argument. I don't buy the argument. But for me, th- that's a weird position among among economists. Um, but I, I think high inflation is is destructive, and I don't see an excuse for it. So I disagree with him on that.
3: He is Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Don, thanks for joining us. As always, appreciate it. Mike, right. right. glad to be here. Take care.
0: To the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
3: Welcome back to the show. Uh, we close uh, with this uh, very interesting response to LeBron James, sort of an open letter to LeBron James from a gentleman named Patrick Hampton who uh, writes for the Patriot Post, among other outlets, black Gentlemen. Uh, this is sort of uh, going back to our conversation earlier in the program with former Dallas Cowboy Judd Garrett about uh, sports and uh, these individuals with uh, outsized platforms and underdeveloped intellects. Dear LeBron James writes Patrick Hampton, I'm a father of four brown boys. You don't speak for me and my bra- and my boys. It is my responsibility as a father to protect and serve them. There's no need for police in my home because as a father, I'm the authority in the home. Police are needed where fathers in law and order are absent. When there is no father to protect and serve children, police have to move into that community to protect and serve. Where there is no father or authority in the home or neighborhood, young men rebel. This is why police are having a hard time gaining compliance with fatherless boys on the side of the road. They refuse to sit down, be quiet, and comply. Why? Because the police are the first men to tell them no and assert their authority. These boys have spent years under no one's authority. That's the main problem. So please don't speak for me and my boys. Me and my boys are not terrified of the police because we respect the police and accept their authority. That's because they first had to respect me as their father and accept my authority. Actually, one of them wants to be a police officer. You, LeBron, are trying to destroy that dream by painting police officers in a negative light when most are good guys. We are aware of the fact that 93% of all black homicides are by black men. If you really want to help fatherless boys like yourself, stop using fear tactics and guilt trips. Help promote legislation like equal shared parenting that helps divorced dads and single dads have more time with their children without paying more child support. Stop blaming the police and help build better fathers. Stop saying police need more training and train more dads and young black boys on the rule of law and police protocols. Remember, there are millions of black and brown boys out here that are not being killed by police. They're alive and doing quite well. How? We obey the law comply with police. If the police does something wrong or unethical, they live to fight in court and not the side of the road. Something that's been mentioned here many a time. It just doesn't make any sense. Something that was mentioned by David Clark, former Milwaukee County Sheriff, over the weekend at that Trump rally that uh, I participated in, spoke at, as as did Sheriff Clark. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and and also, too, just the, the, the lack of acknowledgement that Significant portions of police in America, department by department, are of minority men and women. The St. Louis police officer tragically murdered over the weekend in response to a man who had after responding to a call for a man who had barricaded himself in his home, opened fire. It's a black gentleman, black police officer that doesn't seem to get garner any appreciation in this conversation. It's disturbing. On a uh, happier and much lighter note on in sports, since I'm a member at Olympia Fields Country Club, which you all got to see if you're golf fans over the weekend at the BMW Championship, give those guys fits. I loved every minute of it. And uh, you also got to see something else for the first time ever a gentleman named rom did something good in chicago so congratulations to john rom congratulations to dj not a big fan but that was a cold-blooded putt on 18 to force sudden death and uh, congratulations to my fair club of olympia fields for hosting a great tournament and thank you for joining us on another edition of the dan prof show please do so again tomorrow
9: this is the dan prof show